From the moment sin and death infected the human race, God started pointing forward to the coming of the Savior. I say the moment, it was maybe a a little bit more than a moment later, but as soon as Adam and Eve fell, God was pointing forward to the coming of the Savior. He, He focused their attention to a time when one would come that would be a Savior who'd set things right. Because things were thrown out of whack, of course, when sin came in. The final result, of course, being death. And God said there'd be one who'd come who'd set things right and would save us. Would save us from sin's payout. And even though it doesn't come right away and it didn't come the way that they thought, and I don't know what Adam and Eve thought when they heard, um, if you sin, if you go your own way. If you choose to go against my stated will, you will die. And it didn't look, their death didn't quite look the way maybe we would have expected. The way I, and I don't know what they would have expected. That would have been a, a foreign concept, die. What's die? All they've known so far up to that point, and we have no idea how long that was, all they've known is life. They don't know what it is, but we know what it is. Amen. We know what death is. God was pointing ahead to his Savior. So I want to read Hebrews chapter 10 tonight again. This is the third week we've touched on this. Um, so I want to just read that. And I, Can you believe it? I forgot my Bible over here. What kind of preacher forgets his Bible on the pew? Let's just go home now. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 10, and then 19 to 25. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer uh, continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of goats, sorry, the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes or when Christ comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the role of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Down, let's go down to verse 19. Since therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus 
by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay, I know that's a a kind of a long-ish passage, but I'll try to be brief about this first section um, that speaks of Christ, the Savior, coming. And he says in verse 5, when Christ comes, at least some translations just put Christ in there, and, but it's implied. Uh, in my translation, it says he. Therefore, when he comes into the world or when Christ comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and burnt offering you haven't desired, but a body you've prepared for me. Okay, we've been looking at this chapter for a a few weeks already, so I'm going to summarize what may appear to be an odd choice for an Advent Christmas um, passage. Um, Because of all the stuff about sacrifices and offerings and law, etc., that kind of thing. But here are three things that I feel God is highlighting in it. One, it speaks of Christ's coming. Simply, it speaks about Christ's coming. Two, it addresses why he came. He comes, he says, you prepared a body for me. And I've come, behold, I come to do your will. It's spoken about why he came. And three, we're told what to do about him coming and about what he did for us. So, the coming of Christ means the fulfillment of God's promise of a Savior. That means the old system that served to instruct and encourage and uh, direct and fill and strengthen God's people for centuries has been replaced. It's been replaced by something far better. The first verse in chapter 10 says, The law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form, not the substance of those things, just a a shadow of them. And it was a foreshadowing of what's to come. What Jesus did wasn't like what was done in the Old Covenant. What was done in the Old Covenant is like Jesus. So, He comes and it says here in uh, verse 9, he takes away the first in order to establish the second. The old arrangement, that old interim arrangement has been replaced by a new one, by something far better. In fact, that something that's so much better is actually someone. It was always pointing to Christ. And he is what the old Covenant, the old system, was always foreshadowing, okay? It was only a shadow of what was to come, not the substance of it. That comes, the reality comes in Christ. But in verses 5 to 7, we read, When Christ came into the world, he said, A body you have prepared for me. What an obscure prophecy from about a thousand years before Christ. A body you've prepared for me. Verse 6, I have come to do your will in a body, in a human body. It's the story 
of Christ coming and God the Son living among us as a person so that we know what it looks like for God to be a person. So we see his attributes, his nature, his character in human form. We can relate to it as opposed to God glorious on sitting on the throne in front of a sea of glass. It's like a rainbow. Everything, the gates are like giant pearls and all these things. It's like we reach only so far and then we're kind of lost. But when we see what God looks like as a man, we have a little better idea. Oh, that's how love looks in human form. That's God's love shown in a human. So he says, I have come to do your will, which didn't just mean he'd live a life free of sin, good as that is, as a man, but also, in the end, he'd offer his sinless life and body as a saving sacrifice for all sinful people. Somebody say hallelujah. Amen. The Savior comes to live a life in perfect submission to God's will. A life in perfect submission to God's will. That's something no one had ever done. That's something no one has ever done since. Only one in absolute perfect submission to the will of God beginning to end. No sin. I had a comic strip someone sent me years ago and it said this was around this time. How many remember many, many years ago there was a movie called The Last Temptation of Christ and it was blasphemous. It showed a bunch of stuff that just was not true to, true to the gospel. But there was a, a cartoon, a comic strip somebody put out called The First Temptation of Christ and it showed a little baby sitting in a high chair and he's got like his sort of oatmeal type stuff sitting in a bowl and he, in his head, he's picturing knocking it off on the floor. The, the, the first temptation, that was, and that, he was tempted in all things like us. He experienced the temptation. He thought about it, but he never did it. Tempted in all things like us. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, tempted in all things like us, yet without sin. Tempted. He, he faced it. He faced real temptation. It wasn't just pseudo. It was the real thing. And he overcame it all. He lives this sinless life, something no one's ever done. And at the end, the end was in sight for Christ from the beginning. That was, I, I don't know when he was conscious of exactly how this would look, but from the beginning of Christ's coming, this end was was planned in the first verses of the book of Hebrews. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. From the beginning, God spoke to the world through his son and he already had that end in mind. In mind. Jesus says in John twelve twenty seven. When he's nearing the end and he knows what's there, he says he's, he's, 
he's uh, heavy in his spirit. And he says, and what am I going to say? God saved me from this hour. It's for this very reason I came. This is why I came. So for us, it's Christmas time. We're looking at this. Oh, the birth of Jesus. But this was always there. It was always part of it. He was always pointing there. It wasn't that, okay, we'll have a few, you know, happy years. But that's, you know, that uh, things will work out. No, that was always there. That was always there. That was always there in God's. That's why the angels rejoiced when that when on the night of Christ's birth, the angels rejoiced. Because they knew the Savior was in the earth. And how is he going to be the Savior? Not just because he was born of a virgin. That's fantastic. But because he's going to die for our sins and restore us to Christ. uh, Restore us to God the Father. He's the one sacrifice sufficient to pay the debt for sinners and give them a fresh start, a clean slate. That is to give us a new life without the old baggage. Just before his arrest and suffering and death, he said, for this reason I came. So, someone might say Christianity focuses so much on sin. Can't we be more positive and focus on the love of God? Let's focus on heaven and, and victory. I want to I talk about victory uh, I, you know, I want to I quote, I can do all things through Christ. We focus too much on sin. Does anybody actually think that? Let me tell you something before you answer. I don't want you to and get embarrassed. Like me, once my pastor, years ago, I wasn't listening and he said something about, who here is perfect? And then I realized, oh, playing it back in my head, oh, you idiot. Okay. <laughs> Instead... People think, I want something positive. I want a positive religion. And Christianity is always talking about sin. But in, you know, confess your sins, turn from your sins, repent of your sins. You know, it's so negative. But listen, if you have symptoms and you go to the doctor, he'll check you out. Why? To address a malady, to address something that's wrong. Right? And so sin is the ultimate, the universal human infection. It's in everyone, in every age, in every culture. Boy, this just gets more and more encouraging, doesn't it? It has been addressed. In fact, it has to be addressed before we can have what Sharice was talking about, peace with God. Without sin being addressed, we can't have peace with God. We can't know him. We can't be like him. We can't live forever with him. We can't, we can't escape death without sin being addressed. Okay, God is holy. Everybody said, God is holy. Not just sort of, not pseudo-holy. He's perfect. He's pure. He's sinless. He's absolutely glorious. He's eternally holy. Years ago, we were singing a worship song, and I, I forget what the song was, but I remember in the midst of it, I realized as we were singing, God is holy, that somewhat in my head, I had a picture of God being like me, only 
better. Yeah, just a little bit better. <laughs> I knocked the oatmeal off. He No. But I realized, oh, no. When, when we say God is holy, it's out of all proportion to anything we can imagine. You know when you meet somebody uh, that is upright and you... They just kind of exude sort of a, a purity in their life. And it's like, you, you change, right? When I first went uh, to school, and I was among a group of Christians that just were zealously pursuing God, I realized, wow, i got to up my game. And it's, when we're around God, we can't even fathom how far but when we say he's holy perfect in his holiness pure no defilement whatsoever jesus even said the prince of this world is coming and he has nothing in me nothing not an iota there's not one little bit of all that other stuff so here's he's eternally holy gloriously holy absolutely holy no defilement no impurity whatsoever so for us to be accepted by him and welcomed into relationship with him the problem of defiling sin has to be dealt with amen something about it has to be dealt with and jesus has done it and he's done it for us by offering his body as a sacrifice once for all time and once for all of us. Somebody say, thank God. I need it. Knowing this, and here's where this goes now, in verse 19 and this last section, where the author says, Since therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by that sacrifice, he's, the, the author is transitioning us. He's a theologian, of the sort of top order. But here he's transitioning and he's forcefully appealing pastorally for what we're going to do about it. He's told us something so that we're informed in our heads. Great, we need that. But now he's saying, therefore, since you know these things, since you understand this, since this has come to you as reality, now it's time to respond. How do you respond? You need to do something about it. What do we do about what he did? Since, therefore, he uses that transitional phrase, knowing something is essential, but now it's time to do something. Not just walk around, oh, I have the knowledge of what God... I just heard a testimony this, this week where a guy said he knew a man that memorized the entire New Testament. Wow, that's a feat. And he was, he was commending him. And then he said, two years after he memorized the New Testament, he came to Christ and got saved. Knowledge isn't the whole game, right? We know that. It's good knowledge. We need it. But if it only goes there, you got to do something about it and respond. So there's a point that we understand things. And like the author here is saying, 
Since therefore we have this confidence, since we have actually this sacrifice for us, now it's time to act. Now it's time to do something. And he says, because of what Jesus has done, we can respond with confidence, with assurance. He says in verse 22, with full assurance of faith. What a wonderful expression. Full assurance of faith. I want it. I want it for you. I want it for me to follow after him. Now, because of who Jesus is and what he's done, if he's inspiring this word and encouraging us to, he says, to draw near, to go into the holy place, and the image, the imagery all through this is comparing what was in the old system, the old arrangement under the old covenant, the old sort of interim arrangement of worship, And it even says in verse 1, it talks about people drawing near. Now he's saying we draw near with a better sacrifice. And we don't draw near like them where the high priest would go into the holy place and offer a sacrifice. Now the veil's been torn, the way is open, and we go in. We actually go in into the presence of God, the place that represents the very presence of God. That's what God wants for us. And so if Jesus says you can go in, we can do it. If he's, if he's saying your confidence is in me, we can do it. A few years ago, actually, but I guess it's only about a year and a half or maybe two years ago, uh, we went on a boat ride with Dwayne and Cherise, it was Sharice's birthday, and they rented a boat somewhere um, uh, by, uh, by, the, is it by the Pan Pacific down there in Coal Harbor. And <laughs> Dwayne was going to take us out under <laughs> the Lionsgate Bridge and out into Indian Arm and English Bay, and we, we went out into open water where some of those ships are going by. And it's like... I don't know if Dwayne really has a clue (laughs) operating that thing. But what I do know is that I have not a, I have a mild, uh, I don't want to say fear after what Sharice just preached, a mild concern about being in the water. Like, and there were some swells, you know, like a, a boat went by and Dwayne's going this thing and, you know, you hit it sometimes and it's like, you know, it's if if you weren't paying attention, it could hit one of those things, and you know, and they turn around ten minutes later, and why is it so quiet in the boat? Oh, John is gone, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so we got in there, and Dwayne seemed very relaxed about this, like he knew what he was doing, and I, as I, you know, I had just a mild concern, but after some prayer and a. And a strong sedative, we got in there, and we're kind of going. And, uh, there were six of us in the boat, and we went out, and I'm not used to being in a vessel that small on water that big. But he was confident, and it didn't take long. I was comfortable because he seemed to know which hand goes where and all of that kind of stuff. Now, for us, here's, here's Jesus. Think. The one man ever to live a sinless life who's the guy who has secured forgiveness for you from all your sins. 
from all of them, the big, the little. We come to him, there's not something that somehow was too much for Jesus to handle. He covered it. That one guy who lived that life, he says, because of what he did, you're pronounced clean. You're pronounced righteous. You're qualified or acceptable. No guilt, no shame, no barrier of sin. He says the way is open for you into God's presence. Can we take him at his word? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If if he's saying that, if Jesus, that one guy, that one man, that one Savior who really did it from beginning to end, no sin, no one had ever done it, he says this, the way is open into the presence of God. Are we going to believe him? Oh, we ought to. If we're not, it's like, Here's a million dollars. Oh, thanks, thanks. That's great, that's great. Put it down and never, never employ it. Never use it. Well, why? Why would we do that? Jesus is saying the way is open for you into the presence of God. Go in with confidence. Go in, draw near in verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Having a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Again, the imagery. The priest would go in. Things were sprinkled with blood. It meant it's consecrated. It's acceptable. It's set apart. It says, and our bodies washed with pure water. As they'd go into the temple, they'd wash continually in this basin. Uh, They'd wash themselves so they knew, we've done all, we've, we've filled, uh, we've fulfilled all of the requirements to go in to the presence And here, all the requirements have been done for us through Christ. And now he says, so draw near. Go near. Our confidence and assurance to draw near to God comes from Jesus and what he's done. Amen? Not what we do. And we draw near to God going right into the most holy place, the presence of God to behold him, to see him as he is, to worship him, to to fellowship with him. It doesn't talk about fellowship here exactly, but we know that from the testimony of Scripture. That's what he wants. God was not content to know us from a distance. So here he comes, the incarnation. What that means is God in a body, in a human body among us. He came near one so we'd be able to see who God is and know him but also to be near to us to pull us close and now Jesus came here in a human body to represent God to us now he's gone to the right hand of God and opened the way and he represents us to God and calls us to himself now Christ's life and death and sacrifice the benefits of that are not sort of the are not something that we lay hold of with an ambiguous belief some kind of surface level 
Oh, yes, I believe in God. I used to say that, and then I got saved. Oh, yeah, I believe in God. When the subject came up, but I really didn't know what I was talking about. It's not an ambiguous, superficial belief, but a conviction. Somebody has a conviction about something, an evidence-based conviction that's rooted in a God-given, heart-opening glimpse of eternal reality, which is Jesus Christ, the one sinless man. I want to say that again because it encourages me. The faith that assures us to draw near to the very presence of God, which is God's idea, His desire, is not a superficial belief, but a conviction rooted in a God-given, heart-opening, heart-anchoring glimpse of reality. The reality that the Savior Son of God has come, lived a sinless life, and defeated sin and death so that you and I and all who believe in Him can receive forgiveness for our sins so that we're welcomed into nearness with God. If you're hearing this tonight and God, you feel God is opening your heart to the reality that Christ was and is the coming Savior. That he's come to save you and bring you close to him. If you're hearing that and God's opening your heart, will you respond to him tonight? Not trusting in church attendance, not trusting in, you know, giving to charity or any other thing, but trusting in what the one sinless Son of God did to free us from the thing that was a barrier between us and God. He did what we need. So will you turn from Life on your own terms, rejecting God's rightful role and rule in your life, continuing on in sin and self-dependence, continuing in hurt and hopelessness and fear. Do you want that? You don't have to have that. You can turn from it tonight and instead trust in Jesus who's died so you can be forgiven and qualified, welcomed, into the very presence of God, which again is what God desires. He desires us to come close, to be his very children. So I want to ask this tonight. If you've never received Christ as Savior, and you've never asked him to come into your life, you've never acknowledged, God, I'm a sinner, and I need forgiveness, and I want to be reconciled to you. I don't want to bear that um, that sin any longer. I want you. If that's you, tonight's a night that you can surrender your heart fully to him. If you've done that before, but you feel that you've drifted, and maybe you've let other things come in, and you really have been kind of, you know, tepid about a relationship with him, well, tonight's a night to surrender your heart back to him as well. We don't ever have to go far. It's, he's there. He's willing. He's gracious. Gracious and merciful. Abounding in loving kindness. Amen?